Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of So Important, that little podcast where we talk with all manner of people about something interesting and important to them. Well, if you are anything like me, you are missing baseball. But not to worry, get ready for our second consecutive podcast dedicated to the great sport. And today, our guest is Professor Mitch Nathanson, a professor of law at Villanova and the author of numerous books and articles on baseball, the law, and society. He's written a new book on the inimitable Jim Bouton, whose decades-long career included seven years with the New York Yankees, as well as stints with Houston, Atlanta, and Seattle. But what Jim Bouton is even better known for was his groundbreaking 1970 book, Ball Four, which was one of the first to present the life of a professional baseball player in all its dimensions, much to the chagrin of many of his former teammates and professional baseball itself. Mitch's book will be published in May, and it is entitled Bouton, The Life of a Baseball Original, and that's what we are going to talk about today. Mitch got to know Bouton personally and had full access to the man and his papers and virtually all of the notes that formed the basis of Ball Four. In his book, Mitch makes the case that the significance of Ball Four goes well beyond the sensationalist headlines it engendered when it was first published. I'm really excited to talk with Mitch about his book. And with that, Mitch, I am very pleased to welcome you to the show. Well, I'm happy to be here. Looking forward to it. Mitch, why don't we dive right in? And I want to talk about Ball Four as a from the perspective of a 60-year-old man. When I read Ball Four as a kid, it was really a rite of passage. And I think it was a rite of passage for a lot of men my age. Uh, there was really nothing like it when I read it. And it's a book that really stays with you. So can you tell us a little bit about the book and how you came to be Jim Bouton's biographer? If you've read any baseball books, you've probably read Ball Four, or at least you've heard of Ball Four. Um, it's such that—that's how groundbreaking a book it was, uh, in that it just blew up everything. It, it, a lot of people remember it as the first tell-all, but it wasn't the first inside the locker room account. And actually, there had been a fair number of them, but that this was the book that really truly told what went on in the locker room, not just sanitized tales or a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Uh, and, and that's what made it so uh, explosive. And that's why his teammates and former teammates and members of the Yankees disliked it so much, um, not because he was telling lies, but because he was telling too much of the truth. I became interested in um, Ball Four and Bouton back in uh, another time when we didn't have baseball, which was the 1981 player strike. There was no baseball for, I think it was 50 days. And um, I was missing it. And I had heard of Ball Four, but I had never read it. And when I read it, I found it funny. It made me miss baseball even more, but it also helped me to understand sort of the labor issues that were going on at the time and really made me see things differently. And ever since then, I've been a Jim Bouton fan. So we're going back to 1981, right? So that's a, that's a long time. And you know, I've always followed Jim Bouton a little bit. I remember his comeback in 78 and, and he he did some things in the 80s and 90s. Um, he would get himself in the news for this or for that. And I always followed him. And um, when it when I started writing baseball related things, Bouton was the first guy on my uh, on my radar. And um, I, I had written something about him about 20 years ago, and I met him then. And I always wanted to write something bigger, but he wasn't really amenable to that because he was he was a writer himself. So that didn't happen. But then he got sick, and um, that sort of opened a window a little bit to somebody else to help tell his story uh, or to put a perspective on his story. And, and that's where I came in. Let's talk about Jim Bouton just for a minute. Uh, you have described him as a man who won all of 62 games, 
but changed professional sports in a way that a 300-game winner never could. And that is quite a statement. So I'm just wondering, can you tell us a little bit about Jim and a little bit about what's behind that statement? So he was not a great baseball player, uh, which is which makes him an unusual subject for a biography. You know, there's a there's a biography out now about Yogi Berra and Yogi Berra was maybe, you know, one of the top two or three catchers of all time. And there's a one about Willie Mays and he might be the greatest player of all time. And that's that's usually who you see biographies um, focused on. But Bouton really changed baseball. I, I would say he changed it more than than, than Barra and Mays. And not it's not only me saying that. Um, John Thorne, the uh, official historian for Major League Baseball, says that um, because of the way he changed the fans' perspective on the game and players' perspective on the business of baseball. Uh, before Bouton came along, um, there was really a plantation mentality in baseball. And that's the way the fans looked at it as well. They looked at the owners as being benevolent patriarchs and um, the fans really didn't have much sympathy for players who held out or things like that. But Bouton put a human face on players and that changed everything. And, and, you know, his book came out in 1970, but he was changing baseball even before that. Um, When he was with the Yankees, he held out a couple of times. And, And when he held out, he made it a point to explain why he was holding out. And he had he had facts. Um, he just didn't want more money. He explained why he thought he was entitled to more money. And people listened. And it really changed things. And I, I, one of the most interesting things to me is, you know, he was not the first holdout in baseball, obviously. The player's been holding out forever. Um, but Joe DiMaggio, I mean, the greatest Yankee, arguably, of all time, held out in 1938. And when he held out, fans got all over him. And just, just to show you how how uh, the balance of power between players and management was such that the greatest Yankee of all time holds out and Yankee fans are mad at him, not the Yankees. Uh, And when Bowden held out, that was the mindset he was up against, but he managed to turn public opinion really in his favor. Uh, And he was not nearly a a Joe DiMaggio. And so that just shows you some of the impact that a guy like that had. Like you said, he won only 62 games, but he was able to do something Joe DiMaggio was unable to do which was to get fans to see the game through his eyes. And and to me, that's what makes him so significant. And you know, as much as as much as, if not more significant, than players who were probably better players on the field. How did uh, Bouton's teammates specifically respond to ball four? Well, even though he did a lot to humanize the players in the fans' eyes and actually made a large swath of fans sympathize with players. Most of his teammates didn't like him um, because of uh, what he did. And I have to be honest, a lot of his teammates didn't like him before Paul Four. You know, he he spoke his mind and he didn't really follow protocol. I'll give you a quick example of just how revolutionary and how different Bouton was. I spoke to Fritz Peterson, who was a teammate of Bouton's with the Yankees in the mid-60s. And uh, Peterson told me that uh, at the end of every season, the uh, Yankees, uh, the traveling secretary would give out to all the players a, li- uh, a list of all the other players' um, contact information, their address and their phone numbers. And Whitey Ford pulled Peterson aside. This is when Peterson was a rookie. And Whitey Ford said to him, you know you're not allowed to send Christmas cards unless you until you've been with the team for five years. And that's how it was, right? If you were young, you kept your mouth shut. When you earned your stripes, then you could speak. Bouton was speaking his mind as a rookie, and that just rubbed 
pretty much all of his teammates the wrong way, except for some of the younger ones like uh, Joe Papatone or Phil Linz, who were young themselves. But the older guys, the coaches, any anybody who had been in baseball and adhered to the protocol, they just saw this guy as being a rabble rouser, troublemaker, because they didn't really understand what was going on. They were They were big men in the clubhouse, but they were getting taken advantage of by management. And uh, they somewhat knew that, but I don't think they like being called out on that. But I, I guess a lot of them saw him as trying to capitalize on his not stellar baseball career, you know, trying to take advantage of things. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there was some of that. Uh, there, there, there was a lot of talk after Ball 4 came out that, well, you know, anybody could have written that book. It's just that most everybody else refused to um, tell inside lot the locker room stories. One of the players I spoke to for this book was Jim Cott, who's who's a very smart guy. And, but that's what Jim Cott said. He said, well, you know, I could have written that book. Anybody could have written that book, which is completely misunderstanding what that book is about. It's not telling a bunch of lurid clubhouse stories. It's actually having a perspective on the game, on the people who played the game, on relationships. There were There were not that many players, if any other players, who could have told the story the way Bouton told it. And I think that's what a lot of the players missed. All they knew were the lurid stories of Mickey Mantle being drunk and hitting a home run and you know, beaver shooting on the Shore Motel in Washington and greenies and all that stuff. Uh, and that stuff's in there. But that's not what makes Ball Four the book that it is. But the players and Major League Baseball have a great interest in that stuff not being public. And so here he was putting it all out there. And uh, it's not hard to understand why they had the reaction that they did. Bouton always said, and I think I agree with him, that he made the game more interesting. So you could say that the players were protecting something that they they cherished and didn't want Bouton to blow it to all to hell, but he actually made it more interesting. You know, during this time, baseball's losing its grip as the national pastime. By the late 60s, the NFL is starting to really... Uh, overtake it. Uh, baseball was in trouble, but a lot of people in baseball just refused to recognize that, even though we're four, four Super Bowls in by the time Ball Four comes out. And it's very clear at that point that Major League Baseball has got a real competitor in the NFL, which is more colorful in many ways than baseball was. But people know what they know. And so, you know, if it worked for 100 years, why wouldn't it work for the next 100 years? And so I think that's where a lot of the criticism came from. Well, I'm thinking about some of your earlier comments, and you made the point that at first he was a little reluctant to agree to uh, an effort like this, but then he had a debilitating disease in his later years, and he became more open to it. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit. Well, he had a couple of strokes, but they were the result of a degenerative brain condition. They took their toll gradually at first and then really accelerated um, over the last couple of years of his life. So when he, he was aware that he had this condition I, as far back as 2012, but always thought he could get better. But the reality of that, um, that condition is that nobody gets better. And it took him a, some time to come to grips with that. It was really his wife, Paula, who um, encouraged him and uh, encouraged me to go up and meet with them and talk to them and see if we could come to some sort of working arrangement where I could write the book and not completely disrupt their lives. And we did. And so I think at that point, Bouton was accepting of the reality that 
he wasn't going to get better. And, and I think more to the point, he wasn't going to be writing anything else. And as long as he realized, as he thought he was going to be writing something else, he would not have, he would not agree to this. But once it became clear that he wasn't and he accepted that, then he became a little more accepting of me. And he was really terrific to work with, I have to say. He was just a very genial, nice guy and um, always helpful. Anytime I needed to ask him a question or to check something with him or, you know, could you tell me a story about this or that? He was terrific, um, you know, until he got too sick where he couldn't do that anymore. But um, once he was in, he was all in. And um, it was pretty impressive. And he was very uh, open with you about sharing his records, his notes, all his memorabilia that led into the, led to the writing of the book. When I first met him at their home up in the Berkshires, it was all in boxes and because they were um, putting it up for auction. And uh, I didn't have access to a lot of that for a while. But then later, once it was sold to the Library of Congress, they arranged to have me get in there before, before it was actually cataloged. So I was able to get in there then and go through everything, which was terrific uh, because there's just so much in there. There's pictures there's 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 the tapes there's there's everything i mean it's it's just if if you're into this stuff there is there is so much of it in the library of congress now now well now you can't go anywhere but when you can go to the library of congress if you're interested in this it really is it's an amazing archive and it was a lot of serendipitous revelation of looking for this or looking for that and it's amazing what you find when you just you just open a box and you'll see what's inside of it and you you find incredible things there's no question that that's going to give your book quite a bit of value added. I, I think when people read it, it sounds like it's really going to be something something very special. Well, I hope so. I mean, the archival material really brings it all together because I spoke to a lot of people and they told me stories and, and I looked, did a lot of research looking at this where people normally look, you know, the sporting news and newspaper accounts and things like that. And that gives you some more information. But the archival material, it's contemporaneous with everything, and you really get a feel for the times, first of all. You get a feeling for his mindset. You get a lot of color added to the stories that he told me and that other people told me. Um, things he may have referred to in passing, I can see referenced in a note he took in 1969. And it really makes it a different book, I think. It would not have been the same book without that, for sure. Uh, because then you just have recollection and newspaper accounts, and they—I think those only take you so far. You really need—you need the other stuff. You need the primary sources, and you need the archival material. Because just going through that, you can really see and feel Jim Bouton putting this thing together in 1969. Everything he was trying to do. Maybe some things that happened that he wasn't anticipating. All that stuff comes through, and it comes through really in Technicolor when you're when you're reading it off the page like that. And I assume that you're still in touch with the family. Yeah, I, I'm in touch with um, uh, Paula. You know, because he he died uh, last summer in 2019. Uh, so yeah, uh, I'm in touch with her, and um, hopefully uh, she enjoys it, and hopefully she likes it, and hopefully people enjoy it. Um, interestingly, when I first met with them. One of the last things they said to me was they didn't want this to be a puff piece. They wanted it to be true and they wanted it to be honest and accurate. And that's what I, I kept that in mind the entire time. And that's what I, that was my goal the entire time. And I hope I've achieved that. I guess we'll find out. Well, you are adding to his legacy in a very important way in that 
naturally leads to my next question is, what do you think is his legacy? I believe his legacy is a person who changed baseball more with his mind than his arm. And I think that there are very few players that you can say that about. He was involved in so many things and and had an approach to the game and to a lot of other things that was really revolutionary, not only for its time, but for all times. Um, He was involved in a a plan to boycott the 68 Olympics because of uh, uh, the apartheid in South Africa. Uh, I mean, who was who was doing that in 1968? He got baseball to think differently about the game, about the relationship between the players and, and the owners and how the games to be should be presented to the public. So he, he really had a social conscience, though, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He, he, he really had a very left leaning progressive outlook. And in baseball, that can't be further from the norm. I mean, he's not the only person to to have that outlook, but generally people who have that outlook keep their mouths shut and their and their and their eyes to the ground, but not him. He spoke out, he spoke up, and a lot of people in the game were annoyed by him. They got perturbed by him. The mere fact that he spoke a lot kind of annoyed people. But um, you know, he he really was able to get his perspective out there, and not only out there, but in a way that even people who otherwise wouldn't agree with him on many things would agree with him on some things. And it's kind of like showing people, here's a new door you can walk through, which is unusual in a conservative sport like baseball. I mean, baseball is still conservative, but if you look at the world in the late 60s, everybody's got longer hair and, and things like that. But baseball, all the players have crew cuts, short hair. It looked like the game looked in the 40s. I mean, baseball hadn't advanced at all. Uh, and the fact that it advanced even a little bit is not just because of Jim Bouton. You know, Marvin Miller had a lot to do with that, but he's one of the people who pushed it forward. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, it's fascinating to think about him um, in the context of some of the other things you were saying at the beginning. You know, baseball is a conservative sport. Baseball is a sport that is steeped in the you know unwritten rules of baseball, and it sounds like uh, you know those unwritten rules are on and off the field. And he basically broke the unwritten rules off the field. And you can understand why he had that reaction that he did at that time. Even as a as, as a young player, uh, he didn't adhere to any of the unwritten rules. And that was the initial thing that really bothered his older teammates. There was an unwritten rule that if you were young and you played for the Yankees, you you deferred to the older players. You didn't give a lot of interviews after the, the game was over. Sure, if you were the star of the game, yes, you would answer questions, um, but you weren't the go-to person. Jim Bouton was the go-to person pretty much from the moment he got to uh, got to New York. And this is in a locker room with Mickey Mantle. And you know, the, the media, of course, wanted to talk to Mantle, but Mantle would just turn his back to him. Bouton, he would talk to anybody. And I, the fact that he would made the older players suspect and nervous. And they, uh, some of them thought he was a, uh, he was a spy uh, for, the, for the writers uh, and, and it was feeding them information. And so that, that caused some friction from the get-go. But very early on, Bouton very clearly said, I don't really care what my older teammates think. They have a right to do what they want to do. I have a right to do what I want to do. And um, let's just leave it at that. And that answer by itself is going to get you in trouble if you're working for the New York Yankees or playing for the New York Yankees in the 1960s. It's fascinating stuff. It really says a lot about how the times have changed, I think. But in the end, it's a baseball book. 
and bringing it back to the very last sentence of the book. That's become a famous sentence. I would love to get your perspective on how that captures the man who wrote this book. And you know the sentence, I'm sure, but it's, uh, you see, you spend a good time of your life gripping a baseball. And in the end, it turns out that it was the other way around all the time. And that really says a lot about where he was coming from. He was a ball player. Yeah, he was always a ball player. They When he left organized baseball in 1970, very quickly, he started playing amateur baseball. And that's what he did. I mean, because he just... He just loved to play baseball. And he said at one point that he thought he was the first fan to actually take the field as a Major League Baseball player. And I don't know if he's the first fan, but he's one of the few fans uh, to do that. And, and what I mean by that is most Major League ball players were always the best. And so they've grown up. They, they knew they were good at what they did. And because you're good at it, yes, you have an appreciation for it and you like it because you're good at it. But it's a different sort of affection for the game that a fan has who just loves the game anyway. Bouton was never the best player on his team growing up. He he just loved the game as a fan. And then he got better in his last couple of years in high school. And that's how he ended up in the major leagues. But he still had that outlook, that mentality that he's a fan. And that comes through in ball four, I think. And that's why when he quit playing baseball, he still played baseball. He played amateur baseball and then eventually he had a comeback. And I talk about that a little bit. But even after that comeback, he continued to play baseball. He was playing baseball up until the second decade of the 21st century. That's amazing. Yeah. Up in the Berkshires, he had he built himself a wall in his backyard, a big um, cinder block wall. And he would go out there. This is up until a couple of years ago when he just couldn't do it anymore. But he would go out there with a bucket full of rubber balls and he would just throw against that wall worked until he worked up a good sweat. And this is a guy who's in his late 70s. And uh, I think that's a testament to that last line in the book, which is... You know, it's the game that has a grip on him. And that never left him. I, I think you really captured the man and you captured the book and the time that he was writing in the context of his writing. And I, I know a lot of people will be really interested in hearing about this. So I just want to say thank you very, very much. Well, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. It was, it was, a, it was a good talk. And I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Absolutely. 